Thank you all for, as a church, I want to say thank you to you for one more thing. Thank you for your patience this past week. Um, obviously, we had no air conditioning last week, and I walked in here last Sunday morning, and I was, I, Charles Brown and I walked in here, I said, Charles, there's no way I'm preaching in there. Uh, I'm going to be passing out. Uh, you're going to be calling 911 because I'm going to get dehydrated. Uh, but y'all are just very flexible last week, so thank you, uh, church, for that. Uh, for that flexibility last week. So our scheduling of our uh, sermon series that we're starting today uh, was, uh, was pushed back a week, and that's okay. Uh, today, uh, I'll be sharing about the triune nature of God. Next Sunday, you're going to want to be here and invite someone to be here. Ken Simpson is going to be talking about Scripture and the importance of Scripture and uh, so Ken will be preaching next week, and then we'll continue for the next five weeks. We're going to be talking about, as a faith family, some of the core beliefs about Christianity. Now, before we dive into this, I want you all to understand, in some things in church life, they're negotiable. Some things are non-negotiable. So these things that we're going to talk about for the next five weeks, these are non-negotiables. We don't negotiate on these as Christians. Now, we don't want to be jerks about it, because then that would make us fundamentalists. Like, we don't want to be jerks about these things, but we want to stand firm on these things that we believe. When our uh, missions team went on uh, our missions trip to uh, Loveland, Colorado, uh, almost a couple of months ago, we had the privilege of meeting with Mark Halleck, the pastor of Calvary Church there in Inglewood, uh, Colorado, a uh, suburb of Denver. And while we were sitting there, we were talking about church revitalization with Mark. Mark is a church revitaliz revitaliz uh, revitalization, say that ten times fast, uh, a church replanting, I'll settle for a simpler word, a church replanting expert. And one of the things, Mark, we sat with him, I don't know, two and a half hours, almost three hours with him. One of the things he said that churches that are dying, one of the reasons, not the reasons, but one of the reasons they die is because they hold on to the negotiable things. And what he did is, you've got one hand that is open-handed. Those are the non-negotiables. What are some of those, non uh, those uh, negotiables, things that aren't really that big? Well, color of the carpet, maybe style of worship. Those kinds of things that are, and we can make a long list of those negotiable things. Those things are not, those things, they're, yeah, they might be important, but we can, we can differ on those things and get along. But then you've got these things that are closed fists that you have to hold on to. So churches that are dying and that need replanting and revitalized, somewhere along the line, they've made the negotiables non-negotiables, and they've made the non-negotiables, negotiable. You see what I'm saying? They've gotten their priorities out of whack. Well, this morning and for the next five weeks, we as a faith family, we're going to be talking about those non-negotiables. We have to hold on to these as believers. Today we're going to talk about the triune nature of God. If we get flexible on the triune nature of God, then the very nature of who God is is under attack to want to where we can almost make God whoever we want him to make him. David Platt, the president of the International Mission Board, he said, we as American Christians, we are guilty of idolatry. Because over the last few decades, we have made God into whatever we want God to be. And that's nothing short of idolatry. 
And so we as a church for the next five weeks, we're going to be talking about these core beliefs of Christianity, these fundamentals. What do we hold on to? Now, there's a real danger in doing this, okay? I want us to be aware of the danger in this. There's a real danger here of us feeling like, okay, I've got this figured out. I feel good. I feel more knowledgeable. And we can walk out here with an arrogant spirit, an arrogant attitude, a prideful attitude, feeling like I know more now. So there's a real danger that we don't want to be puffed up in that. No, what really what we want to do is we walk through these things. We want to become more and more in awe of God. Today we're going to be talking about the triune nature of God. I'm just going to be upfront and honest with you, transparent. This is really complex. And by nature, this is just me, I don't like complex things. I like simple things. Yesterday, uh, Marilyn and I, if you can believe this, um, our daughter, Anna, is going to be born in the next week. Okay? Uh, so I'm nervous, a little bit nervous right now, so pray for me. Uh, I'm a little unsure. Not necessarily about the baby thing. This is our third, so I feel a little bit confident about that. So that means I'm about to really get run over. But about raising a daughter, like I know the boy thing well. But the girl thing, I'm a little bit, you know, unsure about raising daughters. So dads, if, you're, if you have girls, come talk to me. Like, I saw Rob Sykes. I was like, Rob, I need to talk to you about raising girls. Like, I, I don't know what I'm getting into. And he's raised Anna, his Anna so well. And so we, you know, we're going through these complex things. And yesterday, Marilyn and I were working in the nursery and putting together a dresser. I don't know if you've put furniture together. That's complex. Or at least for my simple mind, that's complex. I got to the point yesterday afternoon where I just wanted to throw that dresser out the second story window. I was done. Like, she doesn't need a dresser. We can just, you know, Marilyn had her bags of clothes and Walmart sacks. Like, she can live out of Walmart sacks, right? Like, we don't need a dresser. And I don't, by nature, I don't like complex things. Now, maybe there's some of you, uh, I know we have some former engineers in our church, you like complex things. And you've got to get it figured out. We're not going to completely figure this out this morning. But this is a deep subject, the triune nature of God, and one that confuses Christians, let alone unbelievers. If we were to go on a road trip as a church, and we were to go to visit Amarillo, Texas, there's a, there's a restaurant there in Amarillo, it's called the Beg Texan Steak Ranch. All right, I'm a, I like steak. I really like steak. I've told you all many times that my favorite restaurant is Outback. I really enjoy steak. Well, if we were to go together to the Big Texan Steak Ranch, this restaurant is really famous. Maybe you've seen it on the Food Network or the Travel Channel. But what this restaurant is famous for is they have an eating challenge. And for $72, you can purchase a 72-ounce steak. That's four and a half pounds of steak. That's a lot of steak. Now, here's their eating challenge. If you can eat that 72-ounce steak, that four and a half pounds of meat, as well as a shrimp cocktail, baked potato, a salad, and a roll with butter. If you can eat all that food in one hour, they will give you a full refund for your food. You'll get your $72 back, and you get a t-shirt. But if you cannot complete the challenge in that hour, you have to pay the full amount, and you can take the leftovers home. Okay? How many of you think you could do that challenge in one hour? Anyone think you can do that? No one here? I didn't think so. Okay, I don't think I could do it either. That's quite a challenge. As we approach the Trinity, the triune nature of God, we're going to feel like we're sitting down at the big Texan steak ranch, and we're attempting to eat that 72-ounce steak and extras. 
You are going to feel like this morning, because I have felt like this the last two weeks leading up to this point, you are going to feel like a dog drinking from a fire hydrant. You will not be able to take it all in. Okay, so let's just be upfront about that. But here's what I'm hoping. I am hoping that today we can just take a few small bites of that steak and that you'll take the leftovers home and meditate, study, think on these things. Not to puff up our own knowledge, but to go and be the representatives of Jesus Christ to the world. So you have some notes there in your uh, worship guide, so we're going to walk through that together. The first thing I want to share with you is, first of all, we as Christians, we reject something, okay? We, we reject some things as Christians. We reject that one God by, cow, uh, by power created everything in the universe, okay? An example of that would be the Greek god Zeus. Zeus was a very impersonal Greek god, a mythical god, little g, and he was very impersonal. Well, the Greeks believed that by power... The flexing of his muscles, Zeus created the universe. We also hear of other Greco-Roman deities who, have, who had dualistic battles of good versus evil. And out of those battles, the entire universe was created. We reject that. But what do we believe as Christians? We believe that the Godhead is this perfect community of one. Now I'm about to give you a lot of information, so just stay with me. We believe that the Godhead is this perfect community of one, distinct and separate, but one who out of the overflow of his own delight and perfections and joy within himself created himself. So, we believe that at the basis of the universe is a God that is not this flexing, powerful, angry God... What is a glad-filled joy of three persons in one God? Now, again, this doctrine of the Trinity of three gods in one can be confusing for believers, let alone unbelievers. So let's, let's just try to get a taste of it, okay? So in your notes, the Trinity, if we were to define the Trinity, if we're talking about the Trinity, what does that, what does that mean? When we say the Trinity, what do we mean, okay? You've got some notes, some fill-in-the-blank notes there. This is as big as I could get it blown up with, okay? So I'll talk slowly. But God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. Okay, let me say that again, because that's a lot to just digest here. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God. And there is one God. Now you say, Adam, how does that work? I don't know. But I think we need to understand something as we approach this doctrine of the Trinity. Understanding God is never a prerequisite for trusting him. Okay? Understanding God is never a prerequisite of trusting him. There are some things about God that we will just fully, quite frankly, never understand until we're in eternity. We're just not going to understand it. That's why they call it faith. And so we need to understand that. But let's break down this doctrine into smaller pieces. Did you know that the word Trinity is nowhere found in the Bible? If you were to get online or you have some kind of Bible search software, or if you were to look into the concordance of your Bible, the word Trinity is never found in all of scripture. 
it's really just an idea, a word there that is represented throughout the Bible, okay? Trinity really means triunity or three-in-oneness. So we use the word Trinity. When we say Trinity, we're not using a word we find in Scripture. It's an idea represented in Scripture, and it is there to summarize the teaching of Scripture that God is three persons, yet one God. So let's break this down into uh, smaller pieces. Okay, first, God is three persons. Let's break this definition down. Okay, if you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 1. Okay, turn over to John chapter 1. We're going to be in Revelation in just a minute. But turn over to John chapter 1. And I'm going to show you this idea that's represented of the Trinity in John chapter 1. Okay, are you there? John chapter 1, and look at verse 1. God as three persons, it means that God exists as three persons. So God the Father is not God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit's not the Son, the Spirit's not the Father, and we can go round and round with that. There are three distinct persons. So let's see that. Okay, you got that? John chapter 1, verse 1, it says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God... All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So we have this word, the word there, used to describe Jesus Christ. And this fall we're going to go through, we're going to walk verse by verse through the Gospel of John. So we'll go through this passage a little bit more in depth in a few weeks. But this word, word there, is to describe Jesus Christ. Now, when we see that the fact that the word who is seen to be Christ, further down, it says the word was with God... And the Word was God. So this shows a distinction from God the Father, but Jesus Christ is still God. We even see this in Matthew chapter 28, 19 and 20. What does that passage say? Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of what? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, even in his final mission, his final command to the disciples, the Great Commission... He even referred to the Trinity. But the fact that God the Father is mentioned, God the Son is mentioned, and God the Holy Spirit is mentioned, they're all the same playing field. They're all God. Okay, so we see that God is three persons, and each person is fully God. God the Father is obviously God. We see that in the first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1-1. What does that say? In the beginning, talk to me, talk to me. In the beginning, God, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. So the Father is obviously God. We see that in the first verse. But God the Son, back in John 1 here, here Christ is referred to as the Word, and John says he's both with God and was God. The Holy Spirit is God, Matthew 28 again. The Holy Spirit is mentioned in the same levels, God the Father, God the Son. So God is three persons, each person is fully God. Now we have to be careful about something we have to be careful of the idea that there are three gods. We could think that there are three gods, that God the Father is God, God the Son is God, and God the Holy Spirit is God, but they are, yes, they're three persons, they're fully God, but they're each completely separate, that we have three gods. We could easily make that mistake, that's called tritheism, and there's all kinds of reasons why that breaks down, but we have to understand here or we could also have the idea that there is one God who appears in three forms. I think that's probably the most common way that Christians today 
we almost talk like that. That there's one God, but he appears in three different ways. That God the Father appears, and then God appears as the Son in Jesus Christ, and God appears as the Holy Spirit. Well, that's called modalism. That's not correct either. So there is one God. So God is three persons. Each person is fully God. There is one God. It is a constant circle that's always there. One illustration, and there's no really good, perfect illustration of this, is an egg. An egg makes up an egg, but you have the shell, the yolk, and the white, but it all makes one egg. That's one way people describe, use, describe God, but if we were to pick that apart, that even breaks down. God is three persons. Each person is fully God. There is one God. That's referenced in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Then 1 Timothy 2, 5 says, For there is one God. There is one, ma- one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So this is the basis, this is the foundation we're working on. And I've already seen confused faces like, Adam, this is deep waters. I just want to go home, okay? Understand, okay? This is some deep water we're swimming in. Again, avoid that temptation that I have sometimes of wanting to walk away from complex things. Here's the problem with the Protestant church. One of the problems is we don't like theology. Sometimes. Some of us do. Some of us naturally do. But there's many that don't like theology. That's almost a dirty word. Don't be afraid of this. Approach it in faith. Ask God to bring you in greater knowledge of him. And as you grow in your knowledge of him, you will just become more and more in awe of him and worship him. Okay? So if you have your Bibles, now turn over to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. I want to kind of show you how God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they, they work together. All different roles, but one God. They complement one another. So Revelation chapter 4 here, okay? So let's start reading. We're going to see a lot of word pictures and allusions. Don't let that leave you in the dust. Let's approach this scripture together as we try to grow in our our knowledge of the triune nature of God. So let's look at this. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. John here, John, he wrote the Gospel of John. He's writing Revelation here. Revelation is probably one of the most misinterpreted books of the Bible. Revelation is a very important book of the Bible, but there can be an overemphasis on the, re- on the book of Revelation. We can try to figure out these different word pictures, these different creatures, all of that. The main thing we need to understand about Revelation is this. God wins. God wins. Okay? So I know there's folks, well-meaning people, who like to put an overemphasis on Revelation Uh, But we don't want to do that. But we're going to see here more about the three persons of the Godhead. So look at Revelation chapter 4. Let's start reading verse 1. It says this. This is John's vision. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven... And one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. Around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, 
clothed in white garments with white golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the fourth living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives there forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. By your will, they existed and were created. Take a deep breath, okay? What we've just seen is a picture of the throne of God. God the Father. Now, there's a lot of kind of things, crazy things we see here. We see different creatures. We see different elders. But main thing we see here, don't get caught up in the word pictures and the illusions to describe God the Father in this passage. Don't let this distract or confuse you confuse you because the last 11 verses we just read it's about god the father okay let's keep the main thing the main thing this is god the father so the first one we see is god the father we see a lot of the word pictures and illusions a lot of these go back to the old testament write this verse down you can go back and read it daniel chapter 7 ezekiel chapter 1 isaiah chapter 6 these are old testament prophets that had similar visions of God the Father seated on his throne in heaven, and where Isaiah 6, Isaiah glimpsed the glory of God. Now the first thing we need to understand about God the Father is he is seated at the center of the universe. In this passage here in Revelation 4, we see these creatures, we see this lightning, we see all this going on, this, this crystal, like a sea of glass in front of God. All this revolves around God. Sounds like a sci-fi movie a little bit. All this is going around God, and so we need to come to a basic understanding right now together as a faith family. The entire universe revolves around God. Now, our culture today doesn't want, you to, doesn't want us to think that way, does it? What does our culture say? It's all about me. The universe revolves around me. We see here in Revelation chapter 4, that's not the case. It's all about God. So all this is going around God. God the Father is seated at the center of the universe. He sits at the center, sits at the center of the universe. Everything in these two chapters revolves around God's throne. 17 times, and we'll see this more as we get down to Revelation 5, 70 different times the term throne is used by John. And the John is using this to talk about God's throne. This is the center of the universe. 
Everything centers around God. Everything in the scene, everything in the world, every facet of your life and my life revolves around God. So students, as you get ready to start school, I know that's a depressing thought, but that's getting ready to start. So if you're a student here, no matter what level of student you are at school, students, every subject you study centers around God. Do not view science apart from the glory of God. Do not look at history apart from God. Science and history center around God. At work this week, ladies and gentlemen, every job represented in this room, every job, whether you're a doctor, a lawyer, a counselor, a teacher, some kind of consultant, engineer, a manager, mechanic, sales rep, stay-at-home mom, Unless you understand that God is at the center of the universe and everything in your work ultimately revolves around him, you will feel empty in your work. So students, as you study, those of us that work, we must understand that it all revolves around God. You say, Adam, I retire. It's all about me. No, I'm retired. It's not about you. Everything that we see Everything we do revolves around God. Now that's going to affect the way we live, isn't it? Because at our core, as depraved human beings, we live a lifestyle of it's all about me. It's all about my preferences. It's all about what I want, when I want When I want it, and we need to understand that the world revolves around God. And the reality is, if you're a believer sitting here this morning, that when you die or when Jesus comes back and you are in his presence, eternity will not be about us. We will be joined in this chorus of angels and creatures, and we will be worshiping God for all of eternity. So we need to come to that point in our lives that we need to understand that all right so then we see next god is eternal we see that in verses eight through nine let's figure out some more about god's character and attributes first god is eternal it says in verse eight it says holy holy is the lord god almighty who was and is to come god is eternal god there's never a beginning to god there's never an end to god he is eternal He is glorious, verse 11. It says, Worthy are you, O Lord and and God, to receive glory, honor, and power. He is the sustainer of all things. We see this again in verse 11. It says, For he created all things, and by his will they existed and were created. So God the Father, all this is going around God. He's eternal, he's glorious, he's the sustainer of all things, and he is sovereign over all things. Because look down in verse five, or chapter 5, verse 1, down here. Now look what it says. It says, Then I saw at the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So God's got this scroll that we're going to talk about what that scroll is here in just a minute. But we see this, this scroll, and it's in God's hand, and God is in control. He is sovereign over it. Now we see this is God the Father. Now, behold, God the Son. 
Look at verse 1 of Revelation chapter 5. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on back, sealed with seven seals. Now, when we read this, you and I need to be asking, what is this scroll? This is important here, so be thinking that. When you read the Bible, be asking yourself questions. What is the scroll? Let's keep going, verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. That's big. Okay? Be asking ourselves the questions. What is this scroll? What's the big deal here? Verse 4. This is John talking. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. I hope red flags and fireworks are going off in your brain right now. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So here we see God the Son. In chapter 4, we saw God the Father, this majestic God. The entire universe is revolving around him. And he has this scroll in his hand. And there's something about that scroll. What is that scroll? As we begin to break it down, we have to understand here that 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 scroll is the redemptive plan. It's the blueprints of the restoration and redemption of all of mankind. And there is no one on heaven, in heaven or on earth that can break the, that scroll open. Open it up. So in that scroll, this is the end to all world wars. This is the end of physical disease and natural disasters the coming of God's kingdom to man, the recreation of a new heaven and new earth where God's people will enjoy him forever and ever. It's all written on these scrolls, the entire redemptive plan. And who's able to open it? It's not me. It's not you. It's not any angels or elders or creatures in heaven. No one is able to open it. So who is able to open it? And you have this sense in this passage of despair. Because here we have the redemptive blueprints to bring a new world. Forgiveness of sin. Wars will go away. Disease will go away. And who can open it? No one on heaven and on earth. And John sees this in his vision. And what does he do? He weeps. There is despair. Folks, life without God is hopeless. There is despair. And John realizes in his vision, there's no one to come. There's no one that can open that scroll. There's no one that can on heaven or on earth that can repair this distance between me and God, and there's despair. But then an elder comes, 
An elder comes in the midst of John's hopeless wailing, and this elder, and who that is, we don't know. It doesn't, quite frankly, it doesn't matter. This elder speaks up and says, Weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And who is that conquering lion? The lion of Judah. And who is the root of David? Who is that? That's Jesus Christ. And so Revelation 5 introduces God the Son, Jesus Christ. No one else is unable to unlock this redemptive plan. So because he is able to unlock the redemptive plan of God, God the Son, he is described, he holds the key to the redemptive plan. He's the only one that can unlock it. And how does he do it? He conquers like a lion. He is a conquering lion. Now, one problem I have, I'm, I'm not an artistic person, but a lot of the things that you see in art of Jesus Christ, what does Jesus look like? What does Jesus look like? He's this passive, meek person. Don't let that image sink into your mind of Jesus, because Jesus is described here as a conquering lion. Of the tribe of Judah. He's the root of David, so he has conquered. So he is a conquering lion, the root of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He has come, he has conquered, he has eradicated evil, he has defeated sin and death. And how did he conquer? How did God the Son conquer? Because here we see verse 6, go down to verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people of God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So we have this conquering lion, Jesus Christ. He's going to conquer. He's going to bust open these seals to the scroll. And how does he do that? Next line in your notes there. I'll help you walk through it while we try to get the screen working again. He is the slaughtered lamb. So when we think of a conquering lamb, we think of a conqueror. We think of someone coming in and busting down the doors. But Jesus was a slaughtered lamb. So John rises, he sees the strong lion, and to his surprise in verse 6, he sees a slaughtered lamb. So God the Son unlocks the redemptive plan by being slaughtered. He's slaughtered, he's conquered through crucifixion. 
He was slaughtered on the cross for the payment of the sins of the world. So we would not, they've got it under control. Look right up here. I'm up here. Hello. I know everyone's watching over here. I'm here. Look right here. Jesus is the slaughtered lamb and he's slaughtered just like in Exodus chapter 12 when the children of Israel, they were going to come out of slavery in Exodus. What did they do? They slaughtered a lamb and they painted the, the, the blood on the, uh, there we go. We, he, they, planted, they, they painted the blood of the door on the doorpost so that they could uh, not receive death. So we have God the Son, he's the slaughtered lamb. He is the picture of that lamb in Exodus 12, that's blood is painted on the doorframe. That is Jesus Christ, that's a picture of Jesus Christ, the slaughtered lamb. So he conquers, he breaks open the scrolls through being slaughtered. But then we see this lamb, this lion, what does it do? Look at verse 7 of chapter 5, or I'm sorry, chapter 6. It says, among the elders I saw a lamb, what's that next word? Standing. Now, you and I, when we read this, we should say, wait a minute, time out. He's a conquering lion. Now he's a slaughtered lamb. Usually, slaughtered lambs don't stand, right? If a lamb is slaughtered, it's not going to get up. It's going to stay dead. But this slaughtered lamb is slaughtered, but he is standing. What's this a picture of? The resurrection. So we have this conquering lion who conquers by being slaughtered, but he's slaughtered, but he doesn't stay down. He doesn't stay dead. He is standing. And so we see God, the son, this lion, this lamb, verse seven, look at verse seven. It says the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. This lion, this lamb gets up and he takes the scroll from God, the father. Now that is some audacity. You have God the Father there sitting on his throne. The entire universe is revolving around him. And this conquering lion, this slaughtered lamb, gets up and he takes that scroll and he opens it to provide salvation to humanity. And faith family, we need to understand something. No one in heaven and on earth or under the earth is able to take that salvation scroll. And yet Jesus walks right up to the throne of God and surrounded by the living creatures and elders and hosts of angels and he takes that scroll from the hand of God. There is no clearer picture of the divinity of Jesus Christ than right here in Revelation 5 verse 7. Only a divine being could do that. Because God doesn't share the spotlight with just anyone. God only shares the spotlight with himself, and that's Jesus Christ. And so we see the angels, they see this redemption that takes place, and they sing, and they worship, and they say, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So behold God the Son. And God the Son is worthy of worship. That's why when we come in here on Sunday mornings to worship corporately, you hear the phrase, I say this often, to make much of Jesus. When we worship, it's all about Jesus. 
It's all about him. Because he's the one that is worthy. Because he's the one that took that scroll of redemption and by his blood he ransomed you and he ransomed me. It's all about him. Then we see God the Spirit. God the Holy Spirit. He's not real obvious in this passage of Scripture, but we see God the Spirit because in, John, in chapter 4, what we just read a few minutes ago, in chapter 4 we see the seven spirits of God. And we see those seven spirits. It's interpreted by God's character. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, portrays God's Spirit. And what do we know about God through this? Well, first, God is omnipresent. It says that the Spirit is all over the earth. He is omnipresent. God is everywhere. God is in this room right now. He is just as present here as He is present anywhere else in the, on the face of the planet. He's omnipresent. He is omniscient. Nothing escapes His searching gaze. He's all-knowing. God knows everything about you. He knows everything about me. And if you are a believer, you have the Holy Spirit, God's presence in your life living in you. And God knows everything about you. You can't hide anything from Him. So don't try to do that. Don't try to hide from God. You have no secrets. God knows everything about you. He knows every thought we have. He knows every action we do behind closed doors. God is omniscient. He's also omnipotent. He has all the power to enact judgment and to enable salvation. And the main role of God the Holy Spirit... See, I think we said this when we went through the book of Acts the last few months, right? We're comfortable with God the Father. We're comfortable with God the Son. We're comfortable with the Bible. But we're, we get a little uneasy, especially as Baptists. We get really uneasy around the Holy Spirit, right? And our Pentecostals, brothers and sisters, they love the Holy Spirit, right? Because when the Holy Spirit shows up, what happens? Crazy things happen. The Holy Spirit's kind of like that crazy uncle that shows up at Thanksgiving and w w wild things happen. The Holy Spirit shows up. But what is the main role of the Holy Spirit? Because I think we are often confused. What does the Holy Spirit do? What does the Holy Spirit do? Well, the Holy Spirit is sent by God the Father and God the Son to carry out the divine mission in the world. The God, the Spirit, is sent by the Father and the Son to carry out the divine mission in the world. But here's what's interesting. If you're a believer here this morning, the Holy Spirit lives in you. God lives in you. So if God the Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son to carry out the divine mission in the world, how is that divine mission in the world carried out? It's through you. It's through me. So that's why we just don't sit back and we allow the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit will do the work. Yes, the Holy Spirit does the work, but He lives in us and He guides us in accomplishing that mission. Isn't it amazing that with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God has ordained it that He's going to live in us in the Holy Spirit and we get to participate in that divine min, uh, mission. God doesn't need us, yet chooses to use us through the Holy Spirit. 
So you say, Adam, how does all this work? The best way I can describe this is the Godhead complements one another. And each member of the Godhead has a role. They're all, they're, they're both God, remember. God is one, but he's three persons, and they're all God. They all have a specific role to accomplish, so they complement one another. Each member of the Godhead has a role that he executes. And when you put these roles together, you have this glorious plan where God glorifies himself by saving us. Tim Keller, I mentioned this a few weeks ago. Tim Keller, he describes, he's the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. I don't think there's a better teacher of doctrine on this planet other than Tim Keller, alive right now. And Tim Keller describes the triune nature of God as a dance. Anyone here really like to dance? Anyone here like to think they can dance? Okay, I think that's like most of us, right? We like to think we can dance. I like to think I can dance. But when you dance, depending on what kind of dance, someone leads and someone follows, right? So sometimes one partner leads, then the other one leads, the other follows, and vice versa. They, they dance. Well, Tim Keller describes the triune nature of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, as a dance. Sometimes we see God the Father who leads, and the Son and Spirit follows. Sometimes we see the Son, especially in the Gospels, leading, is out front. Then we see the Holy Spirit leads, and it's a dance. They complement one another. The complementarian view of the triune nature of God. And when you put these roles together of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all equally God and one God, whatever that formula is, it brings together a glorious plan to God to glorify himself by saving us. You say, Adam, this is a lot of good information. I hope it's good information. And we're just scratching the surface. Like we're just taking a few bites out of this four and a half pound steak of the triune nature of God. We'll never be able to eat it all. But how should we respond to this? What should be our response as Christians to the triune nature of God? What should our, what should our nature, or what, what, what should our response to the, the Trinity, the nature of God? Well, first, the Trinity compels us to receive salvation. If you are here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ, you do, your relationship with God, you are like John here in Revelation 5, where you are completely broken and you have no access to God, you need someone to save you, that's Jesus Christ. He has provided salvation for you. The Holy Spirit 
is calling you. God is calling you to himself, saying, believe me, trust me. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes to the realization that we need Jesus. We need God in our lives. We are sinful. We do not have that capability of our own. God is sovereign, and God opens our eyes to the need of salvation. So trust him. Trust him. So if you are here this morning, the Trinity compels us to salvation. Jesus, the Son of God, was slaughtered to bring you new spiritual life and was resurrected to seal your salvation. And then second, for those of us who are believers, the Trinity motivates us to live a life of mission. Of making God known to the world. So if you're here this morning, you don't know Christ, this doctrine of the Trinity, it compels you to salvation. God says, believe me, trust me for your salvation. And then the Trinity, once we are believers, it compels us and motivates us to live a life on mission of making him known. Pray with me. God, we as your people here this morning recognize that you are God and we are not. That this entire world and entire universe, it is all about you. We know that even right now there are angels singing praises to you, that all of heaven right now is worshiping you. And right now we as a gathered church, we participate in that. God, I pray that you would help us, God, hammer home in our hearts that this world, this universe, it is not about us. It is about you. Help us to live a life that is centered on you. God, we thank you that with how glorious how big, how holy you are. You came and you died on the cross for our sin. That you were that conquering lamb, Jesus. That you were the conquering lamb and you conquered by being slaughtered. And you ransomed us to yourself. Holy Spirit, thank you for sealing and guaranteeing our salvation. And we thank you for allowing us to participate in your mission to the world. And I pray that we would not, le- we would not leave here the same as we came, that we would leave and we would make you known to the ends of the earth. And God, we recognize as people are finite human brains and minds we cannot completely wrap our minds around everything we just talked about today and so i pray you would just help us to trust you grow us in our knowledge of you so we can grow spiritually and take your message the gospel to the people around us and it's in jesus name we pray amen Faith family, thank you for gathering here this morning. If you missed any of the fill in the blanks, I know I talk fast, I have a tendency to talk fast. If you missed any of the fill in the blank notes, 
contact the office, we can email this PowerPoint to you, okay? Maybe you had a hard time seeing it, and you just want to fill in the blanks you missed. We can email this to you, the PowerPoint to you. Thank you for being here. We came together today as the church gathered, and as we leave, we are now the church scattered to take the gospel to our community, our neighbors, our workplaces, and to make much of Jesus to the world. We love you, church. Have a great week. Thank you.